while the troops are gathering and trying to figure out how to get into the right formation, <clears throat> a couple of announcements, just a reminder about the Korean church. I think everything went well Sunday morning, all the reports I got on from both churches that everything went well, and they, um, a number of families had their kids in our Sunday school class, and that went well. Some of those Sunday school classes, I think there was one or two of them doubled in size, so uh, that, that was just great. So that, that's all going quite, quite well. Another announcement on the men's prayer breakfast, Saturday, August the 17th at, um, at, at 7, 7.30. We will be having a special speaker, uh, Wesley Hunt, who is running for the, uh, 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 whatever it is, District 7, Congressional District 7 here in Texas, which is the area around River Oaks, Bel Air, Memorial, out to the, to the west of us, up through Jersey Village and Cyprus in that area. So uh, he'll be speaking to us, and that should be good. He was interviewed the other day on uh, Fox and Friends, so he did a, did a good job. So uh, we're going to hopefully have some men from some other churches. So if you guys know some men at some of the other uh, solid teaching churches in the area, invite them to come over so that they can become informed about what is going on uh, politically. A lot of people are not yet focused on next year as, a, as an election year, but everybody should as part of our as part of our citizenship. Also, information on the uh, tours, Greece and Israel in April, and then the Egypt trip. And the Egypt trip is we we've got a couple of more reg registrations came in. So if you've got any questions, concerns about that, please uh, email us and let me know. We'd really like to get about uh, ten more people to go to make it a good solid. Uh, solid trip. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Every time we have Bible study, every time we read through our Bibles, this is as part of the rest of our life should be. This is part of our service to the Lord. This is part of our worship, and so we should be make sure that we are walking by the Spirit. So we should have a few moments of silent prayer. Give each one the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, abiding in Christ, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, you are our God, our creator, our redeemer. You are alone our God. There is none like you. And Father, we come together this evening to learn more about you, to learn more about your plan for our lives, to learn and understand more about our Lord Jesus Christ and how we are to live, to serve you, and to please you, and to worship you with every aspect of our life. Father, in Scripture says we're to pray for our leaders. We're to pray for them so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, which basically means so that we can carry out the mission the Lord Jesus Christ gave us, and that is to uh, bring the gospel to those who need to hear it, and then to train up those who respond so that they can grow and mature as, as believers in Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that there are many in this country who cannot live a quiet and peaceable life because there's opposition. There's opposition from state governments, opposition from people with whom they work, and it is no longer like it was for the first 150 to 175 years of our nation's history. And we live in a time now where there is more and more overt hostility toward Christianity. We pray that we might be faithful to your word. We pray that we might have true spiritual courage and not be intimidated, not be scared, not be uh, bullied by those who hate Christianity, hate the morals and the spiritual values of Christianity, and that we might stand firm in love uh, toward those who have rejected you and rejected our Lord. Father, we pray for strength, for courage, for knowledge, because we need to use your word in a, in a wise manner in order to challenge others and to teach others and to help them understand that what they are, in many cases, what they are rejecting is a caricature of Christianity, a fake Christianity. But unfortunately, there are too many legalists who have distorted what Christianity is. So, Father, we pray for courage, for wisdom, that we may shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And we pray that as we study your word tonight, we will gain some wisdom as to how to present the gospel and explain who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Peter. We're continuing in Second Peter 1, 1. We look at the second part of verse 1 down to verse 2, and we read that after uh, Peter introduces himself as a bondservant or spiritual slave and apostle, of Jesus Christ, he says, he tells us who he's writing. Later in the epistle, he identifies his audience as the same group that he wrote in the first epistle, but here he simply says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we start, got started going through this verse a few weeks ago, we looked at the pray, phrase, like precious faith, that this is similar language here in Second Peter 1, 1 to Jude 3, which talks about contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that there is a set body of beliefs. Now, when you look at that word faith, and here we say, look at it and we have received or obtained a like precious faith, faith could be understood in one of two ways. 
The first way that faith could be understood here is the act of believing, in which case we have obtained uh, a like precious way of believing. That would indicate that faith was a gift. Almost all commentators, no matter where they stand on the Arminian to Calvinist spectrum, reject that. That's not what Peter is talking about here. He is talking about a body of doctrine because of the similarity of the language in this opening with that which is in Jude and the similarity of all of Second Peter with Jude. It is clear that he's talking about a body of truth, the doctrine, the teaching that we have received uh, from the Lord that has been written down in the scriptures. And so as we look at this, we see that the main verbal idea is the word obtained. It is to those who have obtained. Now, when you see a word like who or which in a uh, clause like this, that tells you that this is a relative clause. And for the grammar geeks, a relative clause is not your main clause. It's a subordinate clause. But here, as a relative clause, it is identifying uh, the recipients of the epistle, those who have obtained. And the word obtained is the word, it's, a, it's not used very much in the New Testament. It is used uh, three other times other than this particular uh, verse. Those who have obtained, and it is this word lancano, it's an aorist active participle, which means that it has to do with something that has already taken place in past time. It uh, doesn't indicate when it occurred in past time, but they have already become believers. But, and it's at that point that they are receiving this body of doctrine, this body of truth, this, uh, these uh, uh, doctrines that are communicated in the Scripture. Those who have obtained, and this word means to receive something by appointment or by lot, and it, that's its his sort of historical meaning, that uh, in the sense of casting something by by lot. And so, for example, in Luke one nine, when it is time to choose who will serve in the temple, Luke writes, according to the custom of the priesthood, his, that is referring to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And so that is the same verb. In John 19.24, it's used to describe the actions of the Roman soldiers who were casting lots for Jesus' garment, for his robe at the foot of the cross. But in uh, Acts uh, 1.17, I think I, I thought I put that in here. Here we go. It's out of order. He was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And so the word that is used as here is the same, same verb in the Greek, and it has that idea of receiving a, a, a portion now, whenever you hear me use the word portion, you ought to automatically think in terms of, of inheritance. And we've gone through a study of that on uh, Sunday morning recently. And so this is the idea of that which is received by all believers. It's, it's part of that inheritance package of being an heir of God. And so that indicates the meaning of this particular word that 
we have received uh, or obtained this apart from merit or works. That's how it came to be used as, as an idiom, that you didn't do anything to get it. Uh, in, in some of these cases, you just, they just cast the lots, and as a result of that, they received something. But it emphasizes receiving something, and you have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. So it emphasizes the grace aspect of receiving this body of truth. And that it is, <coughs> Peter is saying, they have obtained this with us. And so the next question is to identify the first person plural pronoun there. Who, who does the word us describe? And here it would, could refer, there are several guesses, us refers to those who are already bodies of believer. This is addressing a, a Jewish background group, as we saw in First Peter. But I think that the us here refers to the apostles. They're referring to the apostolic truth, the body of truth that has been revealed by God uh, through the apostles. And we can see this in uh, later on when we get down into 120 and uh, 21 where uh, Peter talks about the fact that for prophecy never came by the will of God but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit and then he's going to warn about uh, false teachers coming so I think that uh, the background for this should be that there's a set body of apostolic truth remember when we went through Acts each time you had a different ethnic group a religious group added to the body of Christ, there, was a, a, there were representatives of the apostles present. On the day of Pentecost, you had Peter present. With the Samaritans, you had uh, Peter and John. With the Gentiles, you had Peter and with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And then later in Acts chapter 17, you had the Apostle Paul with those who had been disciples of John the Baptist. So as each of these segments are added to the body of Christ, it's all under the authority of the apostles, so you can't come along and say there are divisions in the body of Christ or that one group is better than the other. They're all united in the one faith, the apostolic faith, the faith that is taught, uh, taught by the apostles. So... The with us, I think, has a narrow meaning with us, i.e. the apostles. And then we have an odd phrase. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you just stop reading it and say the righteousness of our God, you may end up going down the wrong rabbit trail. Because when we'll get to it in a minute, but when you get to that last uh, phrase... You have God and Savior Jesus Christ, where you have a Granville Sharp rule. We'll go into that and review that a little bit. But you go into the Granville Sharp rule, God and Savior. You have an article before God. You have the two nouns, God and Savior. We capitalize them in English as proper nouns. But in Greek, they are not proper nouns. And the Granville Sharp rule does not apply to proper nouns. But it applies to common nouns in the word God and the word Savior are common nouns in, in, in Greek. So that by having both nouns governed by one article with a conjunction between them, then it indicates that 
that God and Savior are, are refer to the same person, and that's referring to Jesus Christ. So the righteousness here is the righteousness of Christ, and it's not related to justification, which is often what we think of when we think of something in relation to or by uh, means of the righteousness of Christ, we jump to justification, but these are those who are already justified, and they have received a body of truth by means of or in relation to or on the basis of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this verse, uh, we are asking a question about, well, what is the relationship of Christ's righteousness here? And the uh, meaning for the for the Greek preposition in is that it is a this is the tenth meaning in uh, uh, BDAG the Greek lexicon, and it's a marker of cause or reason. Okay, so it's a marker of cause. It's on account of something or on the basis of something, and so it is Christ's uh, righteousness that is. Uh, that is the basis here. Now here we have the essence of God, which we've looked at before. Ten attributes sort of summarize it. Different theologians will emphasize and bring in some other attributes here or there, but this basically summarizes the character of God. He is sovereign. He rules over his creation. His righteousness refers to the standard of his character. Okay, he is the standard. What, when you ask the question, what is righteous, what is not righteous, then it goes to the character of God. It's not an abstract standard that both God and his creatures go to. His character is the standard of his righteousness. He sets the standard by who he is. And then the justice is the application of that standard. And the close connection between the two is indicated by the fact that in both Greek and Hebrew, the words that are translated either righteousness or justice are, are often the same word. Dikaiosune uh, is the word for righteousness, the quality of being righteous. And sometimes dikaios relates to not just righteous, but it also relates to justice. And so there are two sides of the same coin. The righteousness is the standard of God's character, and the justice is the application of his standard to his creatures. And then the third or fourth in that list is love. And often in modern theological liberalism, the love of God is thought to contradict his righteousness. Well, how could a righteous God who is loving, send all of his creatures to the lake of fire. That's not very loving. So what they're doing is they're reading their own definition of love into what the Bible says about love rather than letting God, letting the word of God define love in terms of the integrity of God. So we have righteousness and justice and love, and then he is eternal. There's no beginning and no, there's no end. Then the three omnis, omniscient, he knows all things, omnipresent, he is present to every part of his creation at all times. And that relates also to what we might call his immensity, which is brought in by some theologians. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is veracity, which means he is absolute truth. And once again, truth is defined by his character. He, he doesn't, God doesn't meet some abstract external 
ethical standard. God himself is that standard. He is truth. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says, I am the truth. His very being is the standard for what is true and what is false. And then the last is God's immutability. Well, we can take some of these attributes, his righteousness, his justice, his love, and his veracity or truth, and that makes up the integrity of God, the, the integrity of God, which is why he is trustworthy, why he is dependable, why he is stable. And it is on that basis that through Jesus Christ, we are provided with this set body of beliefs, the teachings of Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture. First uh, Corinthians 2.16 refers to this as the mind or the thinking of Jesus Christ. So it's fascinating how all of this fits together in the Scripture. So Peter just summarizes this here, that we have received... Uh, on the basis of grace, that's a uh, connotation of the word there, uh, like precious faith with us. They, they, the, his readers are believing the same set of doctrines, the same set of beliefs that have been revealed and taught by the apostles. And it's on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that brings us to that last a prepositional phrase uh, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that brings up two important questions. The first is, are the terms God and Savior synonyms? Do they re both refer to Jesus Christ? Or is he talking about our God, that is God the Father, and second, the Savior, Jesus Christ? And so the second question that comes along with that is the question, does this passage support the deity of Christ? So we need to take a little time to talk about the deity of Christ tonight, but we'll begin with just a review of the grammar here. This is what is known as the Granville Sharp Rule. Now, Granville Sharp was a British gentleman in the 19th century, late, uh, excuse me, late 18th century, he was quite well educated. He was self-taught in Greek, but his knowledge of Greek and his familiarity with Greek was encyclopedic. And as he read through and studied his Greek New Testament, and it's, it's really interesting to realize how far we have fallen in our education. Here's just your typical standard man sitting in the pew of his Anglican church in England and he is following everything that is being taught in his Greek New Testament that is open on his lap. If you did not do that, you were the odd man out. You were unusual. Recently, I was doing, uh, doing some reading. You, if you remember when we were studying some things about demon possession in, at the end of the First Peter course, I think, um, not too long ago, we were talking about demon possession, and one of the illustrations that I've used for years to teach on the fact that, w that spiritual warfare for the believer is defensive in regard to Satan, not offensive, I've used the illustration of the Fetterman Massacre. And I talked about that one night, probably within the last six or seven months, and 
somebody who's a live streamer emailed me and said, you need to read the book, um, The Heart of Everything That Is, the story of Red Cloud, an American legend. And it's an extremely well-written history of the war that spanned about 30 or 40 years that the American army on the frontier fought with the Sioux Indians and under, uh, under, under Red Cloud. Red Cloud was the leader of the 2,000 Indians that massacred Fetterman and his soldiers in the Fetterman uh, massacre. Uh, Carrington was the commanding officer back at the fort. And one of the things, I, interesting tidbits that I learned about, about Carrington, he, re, he wasn't a combat soldier, he was more of an administrator, and he did a good job of that. But he got up every morning, and he would read in his Hebrew text and then his Greek text as he had his morning devotions. Okay? That was standard. You know, what, what's happened to us? That we got many leaders. I've had churches where the leaders were doing good just to read the English text and understand it, much less Greek or Hebrew. We have fallen so far, and we think that, oh, we're so advanced in our modern technology, but the modern technology has distracted us from learning, and it stood in the way of, of really learning these things. So Granville Sharp was a, one of those brilliant men from the late 1700s, and as he studied the text, he noticed these things, and he really noticed it in relation to the deity of Christ in passages like 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. And so he developed a, a rule based on that. And this is the statement of the rule here, that when the copulative chi, chi is the Greek word translated and, and copulative just means it joins two nouns. When the copulative chi connects two nouns of the same case, that is nouns either substantive or adjective, or participles of personal description respecting office, dignity, affinity, or connection, and attributes, properties, or qualities, good or ill. If the article, ha, that's the Greek article, if the article or any of its cases precedes the first of the said nouns or participles and is not repeated before the second noun or participle, the latter always relates to the same person that is expressed or described by the first noun or participle. In other words, you have article, noun, or article, substantive, chi, substantive, without repeating the article. And so that is uh, typically, you have heard this in relation to the use of pastor-teacher in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 10 and 11, and I went through that not long ago in the First Peter 5 series, much more extended discussion of Granville Sharp. But Dan Wallace, who was a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary, who has gone on to gain great worldwide recognition as a grammarian, has published a lot of works. He wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation, I believe, on the, uh, on the Granville Sharp rule. And he's done a good job in some areas, and he's not done a good job in other areas. Biggest critique from people we associate with is that he reads his lordship theology into the grammar in too many places. So you always have to be aware of that. Nobody's perfect. Everybody, whoever you read in any grammar is going to be guilty to some degree of reading their theological presuppositions into the grammar. 
And part of the reason you go to a good seminary education and not rely simply on being self-taught in the languages is so that you can understand a lot of those different different nuances. But in his section on, on the Granville-Sharp rule, Wallace writes, in Greek, when two nouns are connected by chi and the article precedes only the first noun, there's a close connection between the two. That connection always indicates, notice, th he says there's three different levels of, of connection there. At least some sort of unity. They're, they may not be identical, but there's indicating that there's something very close. The writer sees those two nouns as being very, very close. At a higher level, it may connote equality between the two nouns. And at the highest level, it may indicate identity. In other words, in a passages like this where you have God and Savior, that indicates identity and that Jesus is fully divine. So he goes on to say that a proper noun is not, it doesn't relate to a proper noun. Those are the exceptions. Of, uh, there's a couple of different exceptions. And he says that a proper noun is defined as a noun that cannot be pluralized. Now, we might think that, that God or gods could be pluralized, but not in, that, not in that sense. So according to the Granville-Sharp rule, neither noun can be impersonal, neither is a plural, and neither is a proper name. So this, this really fits uh, hit the criteria for Sharp's rule, which is what he says at the bottom. If it meets all these uh, qualities, it fits Sharp's rule. Since theoi is possible, theos is not a proper name. So that is a proper name can't be pluralized. So that tells us that, that when it says God and Savior, that this can't be pluralized. Lord can be pluralized, so it's not a proper name. So we have several passages like this in Second Peter which is fascinating because Peter makes a real issue out of the deity of Christ. Now, if we think back to what I've covered the last five lessons, talking about the basic basics, the core, the standard absolutes, the sine qua non doctrines of Christianity, there are people today who would not say that the deity of Christ is, fits into that category. They would also say things about the angels aren't in that category and other things, all of which are mentioned in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, or even in Jude. So in 2 Peter 1.11, talks about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ again. Same grammatical construction as in 2 Peter 2.20. And there talks about the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Peter 3.18 refers to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of those reinforce the deity of Jesus Christ. So in the first example, which is 2 Peter 1.11, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, you have the article here, and then the noun, and then you have a pronoun, and the insertion of a pronoun anywhere in the, doesn't affect it. And then you have the chi, the and, and then soteros, the word for savior. So it's article, noun, chi, noun. 
and that fits it as does at each of the others, and I'm not going to go through those, those slides. Titus 2.13 is another verse that does this. Paul writes in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it is a Granville Sharp rule. So more than anything else, the Granville Sharp rule reinforces for us the reality of the deity of Christ. That is what is being said by these biblical authors again and again, that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully God. So what does the Bible teach about the deity of Christ? Let's just review this. I'm going to get partway into this, and then I'm going to give you a practical little test or evaluation, something to think about. So we'll cover some verses first, and then we'll go into that particular illustration. Now, if you get caught up in a discussion with uh, someone about, is Jesus really God? It might be somebody who's Jewish because they reject the deity of Jesus. It might be a Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door with their, uh, with their translation of the Bible. It might be a Muslim because they reject the deity of Christ. Or it could be just somebody who's been influenced by liberal theology. So we should always have at our grasp some verses that tell us about the deity of Christ so that if we get in a conversation with somebody we will not embarrass ourselves because they will know more about the topic than you will. Okay? You will sit down, and if somebody goes regularly to synagogue or they go to uh, their, uh, their mosque, they're drilled on these things. If they're Jehovah's Witnesses, they all have to go out as missionaries and interact with people who disagree with them. So they are set, and they are well-trained. Most Christians, we just say, you know, Jesus is God, and we move right on down the road, and they get caught in a conversation with somebody, and before you know it, they've become a Mormon or they've become a, a Muslim or something else because they haven't learned, uh, learned the Scripture. So we see, first of all, that this is prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, there are a lot of places that we can go in the Old Testament to prove the deity of Christ, but two key verses are important. Uh, just not mentioning Isaiah 7.14 and that whole section in Isaiah 7.8.9 called the Emmanuel uh, section. Uh, this Emmanuel is a Hebrew word meaning God is with us, describing that the one who is born of the virgin will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So it's very clear from that that he must be eternal or he cannot be God. In Micah 5.2 we have the literal prophecy of the location of the birth of the Messiah. Uh, it is addressed to Bethlehem, which was in the territory or original uh, land uh, grant to Ephrath. So it's called Bethlehem of Ephrath or Bethlehem Ephrata. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, this is just a wide spot in the road at that time. It wasn't any bigger than Cut and Shoot, Texas. And a few other places that we could mention, like Dimmit. You know, people just don't know these places you go by, and there's, there's a, a one, one sign for the location, and you're entering and leaving at that one sign. 
one time I was talking to Ryan Baker, whose who's, uh, mother used to work with me over at, at, at Baraka, and I'd use this example, but I used Warda, Texas. And he said, oh, I know where Warda is. Warda is not any bigger than, than uh, Cut and Shoe, probably smaller. I picked it because I'd just gone there. That's where my great-grandmother was buried, but it turned out his mother-in-law's mother lived there. He didn't know where any place else in, in Texas was, but he knew where, where that was. So that's what Bethlehem was like. It was just a wide spot in the road. There were just, a, a, it was, they didn't have, if you had a city like Jerusalem, for those of you who've been to Israel, you first time you go to Israel, you're up there on the Mount of Olives, and I'll point out this little finger of land that's the city of David. That's where what David took as um, for Jerusalem. That was Jerusalem originally for, for hundreds of years after that. A city was simply the place where the administration of the local area w- took place. It's where the administrators lived. People didn't live in cities. They lived out on their farms and away from the cities. The city was just where the leaders uh, would, would live and congregate. So Bethlehem's very, very small. It's where David's family was from. And in this prophecy states, you, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old. From of old. And literally in the Hebrew, it means the one whose goings forth from the east, which was an idiom in ancient times for uh, from the beginning. The sun rises in the east, so that's what it meant, from the beginning. But it meant also from eternity, which is what you see in, as it's defined in the last appositional phrase, from the days of eternity, from everlasting. So that indicates that he's got to be uh, divine. He is born in Bethlehem. That's his human body. But he really has been alive for eternity. Then a second verse is in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Where we're told a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, not, that's not together, that's two words. Wonderful is a word that is, as an adjective, is only applied to God. Uh, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So this is referring to Emmanuel. He's going to be identified as uh, Mighty God. And he will be called Eternal Father's a bad translation. It should be translated Father of Eternity, meaning the Eternal One. So that, again, emphasizes his eternality. Number one, he is a born, which indicates his, the birth of his humanity, the beginning of his humanity. But he is one whose goings forth have been from eternity. He's the Father of Eternity. Those are just two passages that all of you should have locked down. As many times as I've gone over this, every one of you should automatically think about Isaiah 9-6 and Micah 5-2 as passages in the Old Testament that indicate the eternality of Christ. Then when we get into the Old Testament, how many times have I said this? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. If you've got those chapters down you can find the verses 
And so we're just going to look at, at John, Colossians 1 also, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. In the Hebrew, the word is logos. It's translated word. And the word, or the logos, was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, this is the setup and the introduction to Jesus in the Gospel of John. John doesn't go back to Bethlehem. He doesn't talk about the birth of the prophecies. He starts at a different place. He starts with the eternality of Jesus as the Logos of God. And so in those first three verses, it talks about the Logos. And then there is a shift in verse 4 down to verse 13 that talks about mostly John the Baptist his message, and the reception of his message. And then we have verse 14 that states, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That's the first part of verse 14. So if you take out the section related to John the Baptist and his message and the reception of it, we, it goes directly from verse 3 to, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the in, incarnation. Uh, the eternal word becomes a finite human being. But let's just look at this in terms of the deity because the way John sets this up, it's very simple. It's simple Greek, but it is extremely profound and it is rigorously logical. A couple of things to say about the phrase in the beginning. In the beginning is a Greek prepositional phrase in RK which is the same way in which the first phrase of the Old Testament in Genesis 1-1 is translated into the Septuagint. So if you're Jewish and you read in Arche, you're going to automatically think about Genesis 1-1. The beginning is the beginning of space-time universe when God created the heavens and the earth. Now think about what the heavens look like. Now, most of you, when you try to visualize or imagine what the heavens look like, you've got stars in your heavens. Now, delete the stars. Delete the galaxies. Delete the planets. Delete the meteors and the asteroids and everything else that's there. The only thing that is there is the Earth. The term the heavens just refers to the space-time continuum of the universe. But it's not till day four that God puts the stars and the, and the planets and the sun into that empty space. All you have at the beginning is empty space in the beginning. So that refers to the point in time when God creates the universe, the space-time continuum of the universe, and it's the heavens, which is the space in which the earth is, is uh, floating, and, and the earth. So that's it. And then you have this verb was, which in the uh, Hebrew, uh, which is in the Greek, is the word genomai. It's, uh, or excuse me, it's the word, yeah, it's uh, it's a perfect, it's the perfect of the the word ami rather, uh, not genomai. That's later. Uh, so in the beginning, and it's the imperfect tense which indicates continuous action. 
So in the beginning is a point in time when everything begins. And at that point in time, the Lagos was already continuously existing. And that put and when you go before that point in time called the beginning, you're in eternity past. And throughout eternity past, Jesus has already been existing and continues uh, to exist. Now, in terms of John's logic here, the first thing he references is this point in time, locks us down to this reference point and says that at that time the Logos was continuously existing. And then the next thing he does is he talks about what happens at that time, and that's in verse 3. He says, all things were made through him. Pay attention to that, those first two words. All things were made through him. That means that Jesus can't be a creature because he can't make himself. He, the statement is that he made everything. He didn't make everything but himself. He made everything. So that, that rejects this idea that Jesus was an emanation from God. He's, a, he's the first or the preeminent one that is created first or that he's some sort of an angel and then later receives sort of derivative deity. It is very clear that when you say all things were made through him, that means he's making everything. He is apart from everything. And he himself is not created. And then the text goes on to say, and without him or apart from him, nothing was made that was made. He just repeats the same idea. And so that means in both of those sentences that are statements that Jesus is not created. Jesus is eternal. He is not a creature. It means that Jesus existed before anything was created before any creature came into existence and that he is uncreated and that he had no beginning. Now the next thing that we see in back in verse 1, first it says, in the beginning was the word. And what happens at the beginning is that he makes all things. And then the next thing is he says, John says in the second, uh, second clause there, and the word was with God. And the word therefore with is the preposition pros, which means before, literally before the face of God or face to face with God. And it indicates intimate fellowship. It indicates two persons that are equal in their deity. He is face to face with God. And then he makes it clear in the last statement that he shares in all of the divine attributes equally with God. The Word was God. The Word, the Logos, has all of the identical DNA, as it were, that God the Father has. He's not adding anything. He's not missing anything. He has identical DNA to what God has. He is fully God. He is undiminished deity. Now, when you also look at this, when it says... And the word was God. The word God, theos, does not have an article in front of it. Now, it can take an article. But in Greek, when the article is present, 
it's emphasizing identity as apart from something else. This God as opposed to some other God. When the article is not present, because you only you don't have an indefinite article in Greek. You either have an article which is emphasizing identity or no article which is emphasizing quality. It's not emphasizing indefiniteness. So when the Jehovah's Witness co- Witnesses come along and tell you that this is not translated correctly, that Theos here, because it doesn't have the article, should be translated, he was a god, they're dead wrong. They don't understand the, the function of the Greek article. Without the article, it is emphasizing he has every quality of deity. He is equal to the quali- all the qualities of God. And so it is making a very, very strong statement that the Logos is God, is fully God. So this is the beginning of the Gospel of John, emphasizing that Jesus is God. Later, it's going to bring in the idea that he is the Messiah. We'll get to that. He is the Christos. Christos means the Messiah, and that the Messiah is God. So from the first two passages we looked at from the Old Testament— in Isaiah 9.6 and in Micah 5.2, that's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is clearly human and divine, and when we get into the Gospel of John, we see that he's asserting that the Messiah is divine and human as well. But I think one of the great uh, testimonies coming out of the Gospel of John to the deity of Christ is the way in which Jesus talks about himself, he refers to himself. He doesn't, in, in one passage in uh, John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one, where he's emphasizing that they are one, they're un- in unity, and they are identical in terms of essence, not in terms of numerical identity. But in these other passages, he's emphasizing who he is by the way he talks about himself. So it's not necessary for Jesus to bound onto the scene and say, I'm God, I'm here to save you. He's going to show them, first of all, that he's God. We'll get to that a little later. And then he's going to talk about himself as God. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 4, God identifies himself to Moses as Yahweh. And Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb hayah, which relates to being or it is the to be verb. And so this indicates and is often translated as I am that I am. But it is often referred to simply God is I am. He is the um, eternal one, I am. So in Greek, I am is translated as ego eimi. Now what's interesting is that I've read this, you've heard this, that there are seven great I am statements in the Gospel of John. No, there aren't. There's 10 or 11. But you have to look closely at them because often they're translated as I am he in the English, and in the Greek it's just I am. And every time Jesus refers to himself that way, the, the Pharisees just about have a meltdown. And they're ready to kill him because they understand that he is making a claim to deity. Now, that doesn't strike us that way, but then we're not coming at it from this Old Testament background of the way the Pharisees would would think. So let's just kind of flip our way through John a little bit. 
and see what happens. In John chapter 4, we have the episode where Jesus, instead of going the long way around Samaria and crossing across to the east side of the Jordan and going north, he goes straight through Samaria, stops in um, uh, stops at this well up near uh, Sychar, and, uh, which is uh, Shechem, and there he goes to the well of, of uh, Jacob, and he asks this woman who comes to draw the, the, um, uh, the water and says, um, ask for water. And so they have their conversation, which I'm not going to get into, and you, when you get down to verse, verse 26 or 25, they're having their conversation, and he's identifying himself as the Messiah, as the one who will be worshipped. That's in the previous uh, conversation in verses 22 and 23. And then the woman says to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming. He's already, she understands that he's made a claim to be Messiah, but she's not sure exactly what that is, and she hasn't defined it yet. I know that Messiah is coming, that is, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. That's how it reads in the English. But literally, what it says is, I am the one who speaks to you. Here it is in the Greek, ego a me. And there we have a comma. Ego a me. The relative, the one who speaks to you. You lose this powerful statement in the English. He doesn't say, I am he. He says, I am. He's making a claim to deity right there in front of her. And right at that point, he's interrupted with the disciples coming up. But he's making that clear statement, I am. He's claiming to be God. So when you hear people say, Jesus never claimed to be God, they just haven't been able to pay any attention to what they've been reading or to understand. He claimed to be God many, many times. A second example is in John 6, 35. All of John 6 is what's called the bread of life discourse. And so he refers to himself with a go a me in John 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, if you look at those in parallel, coming to Jesus is a synonym for believing in him. Okay, we have a little saying sometimes that when there's going to be a confrontation, we're going to have a come-to-Jesus moment. Well, biblically, a come-to-Jesus moment is believing in him. It's not having a confrontation. It's believing in him. In John six forty-eight, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 6, 51, he says, I am, again, each time he says, ego a me, he's making a claim to deity. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Eating the bread is a picture, an idiom, for believing in him, accepting him, taking him into yourself. It is that, that uh, comparison, I'm the bread of life in verse 35. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Well, that means you ate. Okay, so eating and believing are just picturesque words. I mean, eating and drinking are picturesque words for believing in Jesus. And then after Jesus says this, look at verse 41. 
Did the Jews pick up on this? I mean, you ignorant, biblically illiterate Gentiles don't get it. But the Jews got it. They knew exactly what he was saying. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They know what he's doing. He's claiming to be God, and their feathers are more than ruffled. They're just vibrating right, right down to the Sea of Galilee because he says these things. Then in John 8, he does the same kind of thing, but this is at the um, Feast of Tabernacles where they had this huge menorah outside the, the temple, and Jesus identifies himself with the light of God. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's claiming to be the source of life. And he's, again, he says, ego a me. In verse 24, he says to the, to the Pharisees in this confrontation, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. Now that phrase is, I believe, a, um, another way, a euphemism of talking, saying you, you're going to die spirit, you're going to die physically in a state of being spiritually dead. You'll die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. Notice, the English provides he. There's no he in the Greek. He says, you will die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. Again, a very, very strong statement of his, of his deity. John 8, 28, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, notice that term, we'll come back to it in a minute. When you lift up the Son of Man, it's a messianic title, then you will know that I am, no he in the, in the Greek, that I am. Again and again, he's using that phrase to identify himself as Yahweh. And then we come to the major verse, John eight fifty eight, when he's having this confrontation with the Pharisees and and um, and he says well you're not really from your father the Abraham before Abraham was I am now did they understand what he was saying there let's look at look at the passage you ought to have this underlined in your Bible in John 8:58, the passage is uh, uses the word was not a me but be be uh, earlier let me see. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, the was is genomai. Before Abraham came into existence. But the am is a me, indicating his eternality. And so in John 8:59, what do the Pharisees want to do? They took up stones to, to stone, it, stone him. Why? Because they understood that he was committing blasphemy. And to the English reader, without the Jewish background, you don't understand what is happening here. He's claiming to be God. In John, <coughs> John 10, 11, I am, ego me, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In the Old Testament, God is pictured as the shepherd of Israel. Again, he's making an identification of himself with God as the shepherd. John eleven twenty five, to Martha he says, Ego me, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. In John thirteen nineteen, he says, Now I tell you before it comes, that when it do does come to pass, you may believe that 
I am, not I am he. Again, making a very strong statement about his deity. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Then I want to skip to one last statement in John chapter 18. This is after he has been betrayed, after he's been arrested, and he is being interrogated by the, the, the chief priests. Okay, and so this starts in John 18, 18 verse 6. So this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers are coming to him, and Jesus says, well, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, not I am he. He says, ego me. And what happens? I mean, he uses the name of God, and they fall to the ground. It knocks them back. And so he, again, is making a claim to deity. Now, we'll come back to a similar episode in Mark before we wrap up. So let me just hit a couple of other verses, the common ones that we've looked at before, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, attributing creation to Jesus, for by him all things were created. Again, he was if he created all things, that couldn't include himself. So it clearly states that he's not a creature. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible. Then uh, Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And in Colossians 2.9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now another fun passage is in Romans 9.5. The way it reads in the New King James Version is, of whom are the fathers and from... Notice all the commas. Remember I talked about that Sunday morning? They use a lot more commas then. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, comma, according to the flesh, comma, Christ came, comma, who is over all, comma, the eternally blessed God. The Greek has a different word order, and uh, but it's very clear from the syntax and even the way the New, the New King James translated it, Christ came, who is Christ? He is the one who is over all the eternally blessed God. It is a clear statement of the deity of Christ. Now, I've tra- retranslated this, of whom the fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Jewish prophet, prophets and fathers of, of Israel, of whom the fathers and from whom the Messiah according to the flesh who is over all the eternally who is over all the eternally blessed god so it's a clear statement of the deity of christ there revelation 111 identifies jesus who appears to john on the island of patmos as the alpha and the omega the first and the last which comes right out of isaiah 44:6 and 48:12 Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. See, how many people do you have there? You have the Father and you have the Son. You have the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. And what do they say together? I am the first and I am the last. This is an attribute of deity. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. So when John attributes to Jesus 
on the Isle of Patmos, the statement, I am the first and the last, that comes right out of the Old Testament, again emphasizing that deity of the second person of the Trinity. But what Jesus does is he shows himself to be God. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, an article appeared in my inbox from Answers in Genesis, and the catch line on there was, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? And I thought, well, that's interesting, because the average Christian gets hooked on some question like that, and it's a bad question, and you don't legitimize it. But that's a question that Muslims are taught to ask you. Where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? Well, this guy, Simon Turpin, who wrote the article, did a very good job, and I'm just going to read parts of that article. He said, when sharing the gospel with Muslims, it is not uncommon to hear the objection, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? This is because many Muslims have been trained by Muslim apologists to ask these questions of Christians and demand that the answer must be in those exact words. Okay, and that's going to trip you up because Jesus never made a statement like that. But, uh, you know, it's always good to ask other questions. And you can say, well, before I answer that question, you use the Shahada, which states there is no God but God, no God, no God but Allah, Muhammad is the messenger of God. Where does it say that in the Quran? It doesn't. It makes those statements in different places, but not in one place. So don't play these stupid little games with me. So Turpin goes on to say, Nevertheless, often when Christians do show the Muslims that Jesus claimed to be God, their response is to argue that the Gospels have been corrupted, and therefore we cannot trust what they say about Jesus. And then he makes a good point. You need to know this. This is a strange claim since the Quran does not teach that the Gospels have been corrupted. Islam, modern Islam does, but the Quran does not. In fact, in Surah 547, he says, Muhammad wrote, and let the people of the Gospel, that would be Christians, the people of the Gospel judge by what Allah has revealed therein, okay? Where therein is in the Gospels. Let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah has revealed in the gospels. And whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed, then it is those who are the defiantly disobedient. So the, the Quran talks about the truthfulness of the gospels in other places, such as Surah 334. But today, Muslim apologists say, no, the gospels have been corrupted. Let me ask, then you can ask the question, so do you know more today than, than Muhammad did when he wrote down what Allah revealed to him? Has Allah changed? You, know, have, have you got better arguments? You know more than what Allah had? Just, just something to trip them up. Anyway, Jesus later demonstrated that he was God, but or made pro, uh, precise statements that he was God, but early on he just demonstrated that he was God and he made statements that indicated he was God. For example, in Matthew 9, 2 through 5 is when he heals the paralytic and the first thing he says to, to the paralyzed man is, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And of course the scribes just have another meltdown 
And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And they said, well, you said your sins are forgiven. He knows what the issue is. They're all upset because he said their sins were forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk? Well, he tells the guy to get up and walk. That's obviously something he does, which indicates that the other should be true as well. Matthew 8.25, he calms the storm when he's out on the, in the boat with the disciples. In Matthew, or in Mark 14.61, when he's being challenged by the high priest, He's silent. He doesn't say a word in fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 53. And the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? That's what he's asking him. Are you the Messiah? They understood that the Messiah was supposed to be the son of God. They, they understood that. And that's what they're asking. Him. Are you saying that you are the Messiah, the son of God? You're saying you're divine. And Jesus responded by saying what? Egoi me. I am. And he said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, at the right hand of God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And so the high priest said, well, that's interesting. Let's go study this. Oh, no, no. He tore his robes because he understood this was absolute blasphemy, and that's what they crucified Jesus for. He crucified, they crucified Jesus because he claimed to be God. That is clear from the text. Now, in Daniel 7.13, when it talks about the Son of Man, Daniel wrote, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And in verse 14, he said, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So it ident- Jesus uses the phrase son of man. He's saying, I am the one who's going to be given the kingdom. And then what does the next phrase in Daniel seven fourteen say? Then all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Well, the Septuagint, the rabbis translated that with the Greek word latruo which in Romans 12.2, it talks about our reasonable service to, we are to our, commit our bodies to worship him. It's our reasonable service, our reasonable worship. It is a worship term. And so Jesus claims to be the son of man. The implication from what the Old Testament teaches is that all nations, all peoples, all languages will worship him, the son of man. So that answers this Muslim objection. So next time we'll come back, look at the second verse in 2 Peter 1 and continue to move forward. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is eternal with you throughout all eternity past in the most intimate fellowship that we we can't even fathom one with you, and yet distinct. And yet he left your throne, he left heaven above and entered into the earth, took on humanity as a baby in a manger,
to enter into human history for the purpose of dying for our sins. And we need to spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about all that that implies. And that will take not only the rest of our lives on earth, but on into much of eternity. We pray that we would be responsive to these challenges. In Christ's name, amen.